Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Hey, what's up, Blazer fans? Welcome to the Blazer's Edge podcast, part of the Almighty Baller Radio Network. I'm Tara Bowen-Biggs, joined, as always, by Blazer's outsider, Danny Morang. Oh, hi. Danny. How are things? Good. Have you recovered from all of the royal wedding festivities? We're not going down that road again. I will not let you. Well, never fear. It's not just us today. We actually have a guest with us. I'm very happy to um, welcome Robert Flom to the podcast today. He has been writing for Blazers Edge for several months now, and he's also been writing for Clips Nation, the L.A. Clippers uh, affiliate of the SB Nation sites. So welcome to the show, Robert. Thank you for having me. I was gonna. Are, I was gonna boo you, but I mean, I, does anybody boo the Clippers anymore? Uh, Lakers fans. Like I said, does anybody but, boo you anymore? <laughs> <laughs> we can come together over the mutual hatred of the Lakers. There you go. Yes. My first question for Robert was gonna be like, how did the how did it come about that you started writing for such an interesting combination of blogs, both the Blazer blog and a Clippers blog? Are you like a follower of Neil Olshay or <laughs> how'd that come about? <laughs> um, it's actually uh, pretty simple. So I've been writing for the the Clippers blog for years now, and uh, Dave, Obviously, you guys know Dave at Blazers Edge sent out an email, I believe, to all the SB Nation editor-in-chiefs asking um, if they could volunteer uh, to write like an outsider perspective or if they had any writers on staff uh, who would be willing to do so. And uh, my editor-in-chief, Lucas, forwarded the email to me, and um, it said that uh, Dave was looking for somebody who likes like statistical writing, and I had a minor in applied statistics in college, and I kind of like that stuff. So I emailed him, and uh, that's how it was set up. Welcome, fellow nerd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we're gonna get. I'm gonna. I'm gonna ask you some some questions about some of the really interesting articles that you've written for Eclipse Nation that are specific to uh, how we can use numbers to uh, how they correlate how how college numbers correlate to the NBA game, but we'll get to that in a minute. We'll talk about some Blazers stuff first, and let's go ahead and start with the big news that happened this week, that Damian Lillard was named to the first team all NBA. He is the third Blazer to make the first team, joining Clyde Drexler and Bill Walton. Lillard averaged 26.9 points this season. Uh, he averaged 36.6 minutes in 73 games. 
The His scoring average was tied for fourth highest in team history. His 227 three-pointers were the second most in a trailblazer season. And he finished the year tied for fourth in the NBA in scoring, tied for 10th in assists, third in free throw percentage, and third in free throws made. What were, Dan, what was your reaction when you learned that Dame had made the first team? Honestly, I was surprised. Um, first team just seemed like it was going to be too high for him. I had him pegged the second team. Um, I figured Westbrook would get the nod because he gets the national attention. Um, the, the, the narrative behind him, another triple-double season. I mean, he had a lot of things going for him, but I think ultimately it came down to uh, expectations. And the Blazers were expected to finish anywhere between 6th and 8th. The Rockets, after the, the big moves for, for PG and, and Mello, were expected to be a top-four team. Um, and while the, there wasn't a big gap between three and uh, eight or nine, um, the Blazers still came out on top and got the number three seed, and that's kind of what propelled them. And I think a, a big part of this has to do with the fact that the Blazers really kind of peaked like right as people are casting their votes. That 13-game winning streak kind of fed right into that time period when guys are really getting consideration even just a few weeks later. Um, and that really helped propel Lillard into that that first team All NBA slot, which is kind of an interesting place to be. Cause that's supposed to be like the top five players in the league, as it's supposed to be. And as much as I love Dame, I don't see him at that level. But it's cool for him to get the nod. I think he's a top ten player, but top five is usually another echelon. So I, I understand why people are getting a little worked up about it. But the path that was created by Westbrook fatigue, um, Curry's injury, and obviously Kyrie being out. Um, and uh, Chris Paul missing a handful of games. I just it opened the door, and Lillard, being that guy, is always kind of the one to be able to slip in in those circumstances. Just about everything is – I feel so bad for him sometimes. I mean, I feel super happy for him, obviously, that he's first-team All-NBA, but there's like yet to have been an accomplishment of his that I don't feel like was accompanied by an asterisk, and I think that is a bummer for him because I think he's better than somebody who gets an asterisk next to his name every time. Absolutely. But it just seems to happen all the other – events surrounding just seem to lead to that Robert as somebody who's not up to your eyeballs in the Blazers all the time like we are what were your thoughts when you heard who the selections were on these uh, on the first team or on any of the teams actually uh, I actually was not surprised I in my very unofficial uh, ballot that I wrote up for Clips Nation I had him on the first team um, like Dan said I think really injuries to other key players put them below him uh, the Thunder with Westbrook just disappointing all season was was pretty bad, even though just looking purely at sheer stats, Westbrook probably outproduced him, uh, quote unquote, on production. Um, but yeah, I think I think he really deserved it. I mean, that playoff performance and the end of the season makes it look bad in hindsight. But looking at the regular season, I think he was one of the top few guards. He played more than the other guys and the Blazers did uh, surpass expectations. So I wasn't I wasn't that surprised. Um, and I really I don't know about the asterisk. I think people put that there. But honestly, like when you look at just anything that happens in the NBA, there's always going to be something that can be asterisked, asterisked. I don't know how <laughs> what that would be. Um, but, yeah, I, I think generally, you know, he's an easy dumping target for people because they don't like his confidence or that they don't like that. He's always campaigning for himself. But I think he deserved it. And I think you know, in a couple of years when people look back on the seasons, I think they'll recognize that he, he probably deserved it. As for the rest of the teams, I was more upset about DeMar DeRozan getting second team, to be quite honest. <laughs> um, I, I just, I don't know. Like, I love the guy. Like, what he's doing for mental health is awesome. He's worked to improve every year. Super cool. 
Uh, I just, I don't think he's like a top six guard. I don't really think he's a top 10 guard in NBA. So, I mean, him making it and Chris Paul not making it, uh, I just, that was, that was rough to see for me. Uh, but Dame, I, I give him props. He had an amazing year. Um, I think he deserved first team. I wanted to throw this little nugget on there because this is something I brought up on the bridge the other day. Um, 33 players in the three-point era have averaged 26 points, six rebounds, four assists or more, right? Or it can be uh, uh, six assists, four rebounds. Um, of those 33, only eight of them have not made first-team All-NBA. And of those eight, four of them played 60 games or less. And the other one is James Harden in 15-16 uh, who didn't make the All-NBA team at all despite leading the league in scoring and playing all 82 games. But, but basically, the, the, the point I wanted to put here is that if you put up that stat line, that stat line alone almost guarantees you a first-team All-NBA slot. So the kind of production, like we're talking about Wester Westbrook's production, what Lillard did is rare air. So it's, it's not surprising in the sense that his production line got him there. I think it's because, number one, it's Portland, and number two, because of all the injuries up and down the league this year that propelled him more than, you know, those opportunities. Robert, as somebody who watched Chris Paul very closely throughout the years, mm -hmm. uh, do you think that Chris Paul, you know, is it just because his role has changed so much and he was injured? Um, do you think he's a different player now? Is he, are we finally starting to see uh, him on the, the downside of his, you know, physicality and, you know, um, or what do you think is going on with that? Yeah, I mean, I think he's definitely a much different player now, even than he was when he first came to the Clippers. He doesn't get to the free throw line much. Uh, when he attacks the basket, he usually just dribbles around and shoots a mid-ranger or passes out instead of, you know, taking it strong to the rim. Uh, his hops are, are, are almost entirely gone. Uh, some of his quickness and speed is gone as well. So he's relying more on outside shots. And generally, that's a less flattering game unless you're a guy like Dame or uh, Kyrie or Steph, obviously, you can hit these like impossible shots off the dribble. And Paul can do that, but he can't do it quite as consistently. So his game is a little less flashy than it used to be. I um, mean, he's clearly the second guy behind Harden. And yeah, I mean, he missed some games. So I think that all took away from him. But uh, his ability to continue to revise his game as he gets older is insane. Um, like, it's, it's a lot easier it looks a lot easier than it is to just continually improve your outside shooting as you get older. I think he's like almost, he's 33 now maybe, and he's shot more threes than ever. And it's tough to get those threes up because he's small and he doesn't have great jumping ability, but um, I mean, he gets them off over much taller opponents. It's pretty remarkable. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I think there's just a general sentiment of dislike for him. Uh, not in the players. I think generally players like him, but a lot of media and fans just don't care for him because of the whining and the tendency to flop and just, again, like he doesn't really have a very flashy fun game and that, that really detracts from him. But uh, he's been, he's, I think he's been Houston's best player in the playoffs, which is pretty crazy. I tell you that, that last game that he played the, where he unfortunately got injured. I was a Chris Paul fan for like 45 seconds and it was a wild ride. <laughs> Uh, yes. Um, I wish him well and a speedy recovery, but that, that was enough. <laughs> that was enough for me, <laughs> but it was, it was, it was exciting, uh, watching Houston have that, that the game before the last one, not the most mm -hmm. recent. It's fun to watch him turn to into a better shooting old man version of Andre Miller. 
I'm not ready to put him and Andre de Miller together in the same sentence. There's one more piece of news that I wanted to talk about. Old man game is strong. And it sort of relates. What? The old man game is strong. Don't doubt it. <laughs> Chris Paul's with that big booty. That, that translates into, Robert, into an immediate I old man game. I love Andre Miller. He's like one of my favorites. Um, <laughs> okay, but going on about the uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about locally is that uh, after Damien was named All-NBA team, John Canzano published an article where he said that sources were saying that Damien has asked for a second meeting with Paul Allen, which Dame then retweeted and told people not to... I think he was saying not to listen to him, but I don't know. It was all very strange. And I would like, I'm very curious, Dan, what you made of that whole exchange and like what Kanzano was getting at. Okay. For everyone out there that loves to bash on Kanzano, hate Kanzano, fine. That's, that's great. That's grand. There's a million reasons why you can say anything you want to about the guy. But as far as his reporting goes and his sources, now (laughs) there, there aren't many times when he gets them wrong. Like, he's been around for a long time. He's, he's got good connections. Um, he was also the guy, you know, that broke the story about the Vulcans kicking around, uh, you know, what the idea was that um, was the issue, the roster construction, or was it the coach, you know, with Terry Stotts in December. Um, so, I mean, w- when people start criticizing that, it's, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, oh, come on, guys. And then Dame comes out and, you know, basically calls him a clown, but he doesn't refute or deny it. And I, I, I didn't think that was a good look for Dame. Like, if, if it's not true, then come out and say it's not true. Because here's my problem with it, is that Gonzalo doesn't name anonymous sources. He names Damian Lillard's agent, Aaron Goodwin, in the report. So it's, it's not like it's something that he's just kind of pulling out of his hat. Like, you don't name sources like that unless you trust your source. Now, Gonzalo could have gotten screwed here. He could have been given bad, uh, 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 a bad story or a bad lead here. And that's the, if that's the case, all Dame has to do is be like, no, you're wrong. And so I, I don't really understand what Damian Lillard gets out of this by calling him a clown other than trying to deflect the, the attention away. And that's what it looks like to me, even if that's not the case. Do you think, I mean, but why would he want to deflect the uh, attention away? I mean, is it, is it just like de facto a bad thing if your star is having one-on-one, requesting one-on-one meetings with the owner is, or is like... You know why? Why would that be something that he wouldn't want? I think discussing anytime that you hear about these meetings, and I, I, from what I've been told, the the meeting that that Lillard had with Paul Allen uh, earlier this year, it wasn't the first time that that had happened. Uh, there have been others that were you know off the record and not reported upon, but I think at this time of year, especially after the way they went out, that people automatically assume the worst that Lillard's asking for a trade or asking for somebody to be traded or something along those lines. And even if that's the case, you're just making an inference. You're, make, you're not even making an educated guess. You're just you're assuming. And I, I think that if, if, if it is true that he is meeting with Paul Allen, good, great, grand. I want Damien Lillard to be involved in everything. Because if, if by some rhyme or reason they screw this up over the next two years and Lillard ends up disenfranchised and leaves, and, then, and this is the worst-case scenario. I was kicking this around the other day. Think about this. The Trailblazers would have drafted Greg Oden, Brandon Roy, LaMarcus Aldridge, and Damian Lillard and gotten nothing in return for them if that were the case. So I want Damian Lillard to be involved. I want him to be satisfied. I want him to help shape the way the franchise is going forward. So me, I look at it and I take it as a good thing. But I think a lot of people, the the knee-jerk reaction is like, oh, no, he's not happy with the way things are going. He may want to get out of here. 
Whereas I'm looking at it as Damian Lillard is a guy who wants to be here through and through, and he wants to make the best possible decisions going forward, and he wants to know what the plan is right now. Not on draft night, not later this summer, but right now. Yeah, and he's always been extremely consistent throughout his entire career and even before he came here about wanting to grow with his team, you know, his his high school team, his AAU team, his college team. He's always been very consistent about wanting to, you know, these are the guys I'm going to ride with. And so, it, it you know, I, I that's why I was like, why is it a bad thing that he's talking with, with Paul Allen? Just because looking at him historically and how he's considered, you know, his teammates as so, so important that um, it just seemed like kind of the natural thing that you would want your star to be involved in. Wow, Tara and I both looking on the bright side of things. What is happening? In I this don't world? know. It must be the off season. Clearly. <laughs> Well, uh, Robert, I don't know if you have uh, followed any of that story uh, from where you are or, or if you want to mm-hmm. add anything. Uh, I mean, I, I read the story. Um, I saw some of the Twitter rebuttal and stuff. I mean, I, again, I think I basically agree that he didn't really say that the report was wrong. So, um, you know, it's probably true to one extent or another. I don't really know. Uh, I have little enough information about the Clippers, much less the Blazers. Um <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's generally a good thing um, when a guy wants to put in the effort to discuss how the team is going and what he what his input is. That's that's generally a a sign that he's committed and wants to be around and really wants the team uh, to be successful. And that can only be a good thing. Players definitely don't always make the best moves. So on that hand, uh, you know, it could be a little worrying, theoretically, if you think like players might favor friends or just don't necessarily have a great opinion on what good players are, uh, which like some of the all-star voting that players do kind of shows that. Um, (laughs) But in terms of like implications for his being tied to Portland, I think that's a good thing. So, yeah. This is one little note on that because um, I I think it's, it's prudent. Damian Lillard wanted the Blazers to take a look at Donovan Mitchell. (laughs) It's going to throw that one out there into the ethos for everybody who else forgets that. We'll never forget it as long as we have you, Dan. <laughs> that's what I'm here for. And that's why we love you. <laughs> well, we are going to keep keep talking about Damian Lillard, but uh, in a, a little bit different fashion. Robert, you recently wrote a piece uh, for Blazer's Edge where you uh, went, ran through uh, which Blazer you thought would be most important to the future of the franchise after Damian Lillard. So Damian Lillard, number one, and then after Mm -hmm. Damian, who would be the most uh, important? And after reading the whole thing, your conclusion was for right now, it's Collins, if I read that right. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, that article and and what you said, and then I would love to hear what Dan thinks. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of I kind of was approaching it. Um, it, it. It was kind of hard to reconcile a bunch of the different ways I was thinking about it. It was just like which player is kind of the most important to retain going forward. Um, so not necessarily for next season, who's the next best player or who's the next most important in terms of the Blazers being good in the near future, but just in terms of who I think they should probably keep outside of Damian Lillard on the team for the next, like, you know, two plus years. I thought it would be him. Uh, I mean, I went through the obvious, you know, like what is their production going into this year? And that's pretty easy. Everybody has different ways to measure production. But generally speaking, I think you can see that CJ McCollum is the second best player. Yusuf Nurkic, at least by Yusuf, I guess, um, 
by raw stats was probably third, though advanced metrics definitely disagree on how good he exactly is. And after that, I think the biggest thing is like the fit with Lillard going forward, because I think that's where both Nurkic and McCollum kind of aren't the greatest, as well as salary, because they're both, uh, Nurkic is probably going to be making a fair amount this summer. McCollum is already making a ton, and Collins is cheap for three years. And even after that, uh, unless he becomes amazing, which can only be a good thing, he's probably going to be cost-controlled on his next contract after that. So I think just in terms of when, especially factoring in cost and what his potential fit could be, I think he's kind of an ideal uh, fit with Lillard, if he reaches that potential, obviously that is a huge if. It's a huge if for any NBA player, especially a prospect who was, you know, pretty solid in his rookie season, but was by no means like he flashed like future superstardom or even all-stardom. So, I mean, I thought he was there, but I think there are other guys you could argue. Um, again, I'm going to focus mostly on like fit and salary. I think Ed Davis is was really important to the Blazers this year, and I feel like he's also going to be pretty cheap again this summer. Uh, and I think Al Farouk Aminu was really, really good this season, especially on defense and his ability to hit threes and switch onto players defensively, very valuable in today's NBA. Uh, the only hesitancy with him is he's going to be a free agent next summer and he might, he's unrestricted. He might want to leave. He might want a pretty big contract, but I think those are really the three ultimately, um, you know, I can definitely see arguments for, for CJ or Nurkic, but that's what it came down to for me. But I focused ultimately on just things, the factors that I think uh, were more important. And for pe people who value like current production and a little less on upside or whatever, uh, I can definitely see why Collins could be a bit of, of a joke as a selection. See now, and I, Dan, what do you think? No, I, I don't really disagree when you're, when you're caveat it that way. And it's almost a de facto um, that it goes to Collins because the Blazers don't really have any tangible young products that have room for growth. I mean, Nurkic is really the only guy that you're looking at and you're about to pay him one way or the other, whether he takes a qualifying offer or he gets 12 million a year. If he takes a qualifying offer, he's only there for a year and then what? And if he, mm. if you, if you do get him locked up, what's his production to salary ratio going to be? And I think that says more about the Blazers current roster than anything else, because the, that's that's always been well not always been but that's been the the recent you know I don't want to call it a joke but it's a recent just make you cry kind of thing is that the fall off for the production to value ratio salary wise is quite staggering I'd argue that Damian Lillard and Alfred Camino and eh, you could put A Davis back in that now now that he's healthy again are the only guys that are producing on what is on par for their production to salary ratio for full-fledged NBA contracts. Collins is, I think, this year producing on par with what you would expect from a rookie scale. If he improves, then he becomes more valuable. Like, you look at what a Jason Tatum or a Donovan Mitchell is doing right now. They're, they're, they're giving you superstar production on rookie scale, and that's the best possible outcome for your draft picks. Like, that's, that's what you ultimately just kill for as a GM in this league, is to, is to get a hold of one of those guys. And then that's not to say that Collins can't be better going forward in the future. And I, honestly, I, I'd say that you're probably right when you're looking at it from, from those perspectives, that Collins is that guy. Um, but I don't know if that's necessarily a great thing right now. Because if you, I mean, you look around the NBA, and what's dominating the NBA playoffs right now? Young, superlative-laden wing players. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's where Portland has had a, basically a giant gaping hole now for three years. And so, it, yeah, except for the Cavs. 
they they're they aren't they're they're they the beast. Young wing players. No, but they they do have the best wing player maybe in NBA history. So I think that skews things a that little bit. That is true. He's pretty good. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I think when you're looking at that production, like this is this, not to get too far off here, but this is a discussion that I've had before. Like, if there was no salary cap in the NBA, how much would LeBron be worth to your franchise? Like, at what at what point does he become so expensive to outweigh his production? So when, when you start thinking yeah. about it in, in those terms, like, would paying LeBron James fifty million dollars a year would you really even bat an eye at that? No. Because, I mean, the, the level of production that you get. And I think that's, that's the, the toughest part about being, a, or would be in my mind, the toughest part about being a GM in the NBA is that you look at a guy like Damian Lillard and you look at a C.J. McCollum. C.J.'s only making a little bit less than Damian Lillard. But mm-hmm. are they the same player? Production-wise, no. Now, C.J. could be better as the number one guy on another team and put up similar to what Damien does, but it's not, that's not what he's being asked to do, but he's being paid almost in the commensurate value to that of Damien Lillard for a different level of production. And, that's, and when, you're, when you're putting it in the forms of production that like you're talking about, you know, overperforming in youth and expectation and, and ability to grow, then Collins is, is, I think, the most important to the future going forward because he's the only one, save maybe Nurkic, who really has more gears left as far as development. Yeah, you know, and it, this is going to kind of lead into the the next discussion that we are having. But you know, thinking of the other young players that are on this team, I mean, uh, Robert, you were talking about uh, you know the, the fact that um, you know when you're when you're value you know, how valuable is somebody to the team? We've got guys like Connaughton and Jake mm-hmm. Lehman who are you know, young right now, Connaughton, we've seen a little bit more about, you know, what he's got. We've barely seen Jake and the way Terry Stotts often does things is we don't really see someone until their third year. So maybe next year will be <laughs> the year um, that, that we see how, how much he's valued. But in terms of, you know, you know, we've had this whole narrative about the trajectory and we are going to have all these guys who were in Damien Lord's trajectory. And eventually if we have, all guys who are in Damian Lillard's trajectory, then several years from now, they're all going to all going to be 31. And then we're just going to have like a couple of random young guys. So it yeah. seems to me that, you know, that somebody has to always be in, in line behind them. And for the, for that reason, you know, that's why Collins is, is the most important to the future of the franchise after Damian, because he kind of anchors the next group that will be coming in. Mm-hmm. I want to let's go off topic here, but I want to give Miles Custis some shout out from from Blazers Edge because he was in the Slack channel, and this was kind of going back to LeBron and how ridiculous he's been. The last time LeBron James wasn't in the finals, Brandon Roy was an All NBA player. That's nuts. <sighs> Thanks for putting it in terms to make us cry, Dan. That is absolutely <laughs> nuts. Just, yeah. Well. Wow. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't. I as I, I've been, I've been uh, talking uh, about LeBron to anybody who will listen to me, and I probably, probably the Blazer fans don't want to hear it right now. I, I just had to put that one I've out there because that's, that's so incredibly that's absurd, impressed with everything that he's done. <laughs> that's an absurd number. Like, you think back and thinking about like what Brandon was and, and how great he was and how long ago that feels. That's that's mm-hmm. absolutely nutty. Yeah. Yeah. It's been an impressive run. That is for sure. Um, but I want to pivot and talk about, uh, people who are just coming into the league. Cause I find mm-hmm. 
next fast next bit fascinating. So uh, Robert wrote you wrote a series of uh, articles for uh, Clips Nation, talking about what college statistics have the strongest correlation to NBA success. So mm -hmm. that is, I imagine that's on your mind as somebody who writes for the Clippers because they have a couple of um, you know they have like a couple of first round picks this this uh, season, and you know all of us are always wanting to know like how do you know you know, who's going to come up in the draft? How do you know it's going to be the right one? And I know, I, I don't think you meant this as like a predictive formula. Like somebody mm -hmm. was necessarily going to be able to be like, look at somebody's stats and predict exactly how they were going to do. But you talk, you're uh, talking about the correlation between how someone's uh, played in college and how well it translates to the NBA. Um, so I wanted to ask you a few questions about that. And mm -hmm. my first question about that is really what was the inspiration behind writing this? So this is a couple years old now. Uh, this is the first time I've done it with all three uh, point guard wings and big men. But I first started, I think it was two summers ago, I did something on just wings and point guards and I updated it again last year. But this is the first year I really I tweaked it a little bit and I added some things. I just changed uh, how I did it a little bit. Um, but the inspiration... It's kind of hazy. I just really like the NBA draft, I think. And um, I'm always just fascinated by who succeeds, who doesn't, why. Uh, I read a lot of stuff about it. Obviously, Draft Express used to be the number one site, uh, but that is no longer around. And uh, there are some other great sites out there now, lots of people who put in great work. But I thought this year, especially for Clippers fans, it was pretty important to get like as much out there as possible about the draft because, again, most people used to just de facto go to to draft express and their amazing videos and pages and those aren't there anymore so that was kind of for updating it again this summer and just getting all the groups in there especially since the clippers have been uh mocked several big men and i hadn't talked about big men before uh i thought that was just the inspiration for doing it this summer back in the day it was just kind of a fun thing really i've tweaked and added a lot to it over the years um, I wasn't except when I first started, I wasn't really expecting to find all that much, to be honest. It was just like, Hey, like what college stats seem to lead to NBA success. And I was like, huh, you know, this model is actually, uh, not horrible. Um, it's not amazing either. Like it does, it doesn't just be like, wow, this is a hundred percent accurate. Cause of course not. But, uh, you know, compared to just the level of variables that are involved in it, which are pretty low really. And, um, just the amount of time of research that I put in, which is you know a decent amount, but not close to like what some scouts or like full-time statistics people do. Uh, I think it's pretty good and it's pretty accurate. And I made some, I've made some pretty good calls the past two years based on it. Uh, I've made some horrible ones too. I'm not gonna <laughs> lie. Um, everybody does, but uh, I predicted Donovan Mitchell's success last year. I thought Pat McCaw and Malcolm Brogdon would be pretty good uh, the year before that. Um, there are just things that stand out when you look at guys. And like I tried to explain as best as possible, the stats themselves don't really say anything. It's like what, what goes into the stats, like what skills, what abilities, what talents um, signify, like come through in the stats and like which of those abilities are most important for NBA success and which of them translate the most. And it's kind of just filtering that through the statistics. Yeah, let's let's get to that in a minute. But first, maybe you could just give a really general overview of what your approach is. Yeah, so I just look at the college stats of players in previous drafts. So for this particular article, it was two from the draft classes, American-born, obviously, because it's NCAA uh, stats, from 2010 to 2015. 
I go through them all. Um, and there are two interesting tweaks that I do that I don't think many people do. One, I do not use per 40 or per 100 possession stats because in my mind, if you're going to make in the NBA, you should probably be playing a pretty fair amount of minutes in the NCAA. Um, and guys who play more, I think generally, especially in college where they might only be there for a year or two, their coaches might well see something about them that wants to give them a lot of minutes or conversely, if they're not playing a lot, even if they have good stats, the coach might not trust something about them. They might have some kind of flaw. And I think that they shouldn't necessarily be rewarded just because they can play really well in 10 minutes a game. So mm -hmm. I don't use um, per 40 stats. And then the second thing is I only look at the last two years of a player's career in college. So in this case, uh, first senior would be their junior and senior years, um, if obviously a freshman, it's just their one. And I just average uh, the two numbers together as, as best as possible and round when I have to. Um, and that's the stats that I use, and I plug them into um, their advanced stats, the NBA, which, again, you can uh, quibble with, like, how accurate exactly are those advanced statistics, like box plus minus or VORP or win shares per 48 minutes. But generally, I think they paint a pretty reasonable picture of who's good and who's not. The middle is where it gets a little hazy, like, what if somebody's, like, 0 0.08 win shares per 48 against like 0.12, you know, who knows? But when somebody's like a huge negative or somebody being a huge positive, like generally speaking, those guys are really good or really bad. Um, so I just look at those, the college numbers, and then just run some pretty simple uh, regression in Excel or R and just see what the model says about what's important. And then the coefficient, as I talk about in, in the articles, uh, whether it's positive or negative basically means that um, if it's positive, you know, the higher, the better, um, the higher that stat is, the higher their NBA advanced statistics are. Negative is the opposite. So you want a stat to be positive, basically, except for age and turnovers, which makes sense that the lower, the better. You want, generally speaking, people who are younger considered better prospects and lower turnovers are better than higher. But, um, yeah, that's basically it, really. And outside of that, it's, it's relatively straightforward. I don't do anything super fancy with statistically, uh, partially because I don't have the background, partially because... I think sometimes we overlook, uh, you know, the forest for the trees kind of thing and trying to create like a perfect fit with models that are super, you know, have a high R squared values or whatever. Like, you know, sometimes it's just a little simpler than I think people want to make it out to be. But yeah, that's basically my method. So speaking of simple, let me like grossly simplify what I think <laughs> your uh, your method is, is that uh, you looked at some different positions. So you looked at bigs, you looked at wings, and you looked at mm -hmm. point guards. And then you looked at which statistics are meaningful in projecting mm -hmm. whether or not they have a successful NBA career. Correct. So yes. for each one, you looked at, you know, at points and assists and steals and blocks and blah, 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 all down the line. Mm -hmm. And for each, you know, different category, you are like for big men, these ones are important. And for wings, these ones are important. So it's not like all statistics are, um, end up being, uh, discussed or, you know, uh, put mm -hmm. under the microscope. It's like the ones that jump out at you that seem significant are the ones that then you look at and go, okay, so how does this make sense? Is that a gross oversimplification of, <laughs> of it? It's not even that oversimplified. That's basically spot on. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, I guess I would love to, for the for the Blazers, because uh, as we've mm -hmm. previously talked about, uh, you know, Zach Collins 
it does appear to be, you know, somebody that the Blazers are really uh, looking at building around. Of course, that could change if they turn. It turns out that he's really valuable and somebody else wants him. But uh, you know, assuming that Zach Collins is going to be around for a while. Could you start off by talking about what are the most predictive stats for the big men? Yes. So for big men, it turned out to be uh, the most predictive were generally um, you have blocks are our number one, uh, which kind of makes sense. You think of big men, you think blocks, um, rebounds and assists were also very important. Um, Points per game were, but in a weird way, they turned it turned out to be negative. So actually, lower points is better. Uh, but yeah, rebounds, assists, and blocks, I'd say, uh, were kind of the most important. And um, that was not that surprising when you think of rebounds and blocks. Those are very big men statistics. I think assists are probably the most interesting one. And then also uh, the points being negative and what exactly that means, because obviously when you when you look at two prospects in college and they have the same stats except one scores like 10 more points a game you wouldn't just be like oh that guy's the worst prospect that doesn't make any sense and that's where like the statistics stuff um you have to kind of ignore that and focus on what exactly they're doing uh but yeah rebounds assistant blocks uh, are are the most important i'd say for big men can you expand a little bit more on why you think points per game had a negative correlation? Because it sounds like what you're saying is that most important, again, like rebounds, assists, and blocks, um, but high points per game is not as significant, which is seems kind of counterproductive because you think that somebody who scores mm-hmm. a lot of points should be, you know, have a lot of uh, juice coming in. Yeah, so... I think I, I talked about this, uh, you know, in the article, of course, but just to try to simplify it a little bit is that a lot of first thing is that college basketball is really different from the NBA. Uh, the NBA is generally more fluid. There's a lot more pick and roll. There's somewhat less ISO and there are definitely less post-ups. Um, when post-ups happen in the NBA, a lot of the time it's on mismatches, as we've seen in the playoffs over and over again. When defenses switch now and you get a big man on a small man or a big wing on a, on a little guard, you can throw the ball to them and they have an advantage in the post and they can pass out. Uh, in college, it's a lot more just sheer bully ball. Like you give the ball to your big man who's just bigger than the other guy. They back them down and they use a little hook shot or they're able to turn around and dunk or something. And that kind of play just isn't that important in the NBA and doesn't really work in the NBA unless you have a lot of skill and a lot of fluidity and I think that's part of why a lot of guys who big men who score a lot in college do so through ways that just aren't that significant mm. in the NBA. Um, so it's not necessarily that scoring is bad. It's that the ways they score uh, is not that great. Um, like if you have a big man in college, he scores 16 points per game, which is a fair amount for college, but he does so off ways that seem to correlate really well to the NBA. Like he's getting putbacks. Uh, he's finishing lobs off pick and roll. He's running in transition. That's really good because those things should be able to translate. If it's just some big seven-foot guy who has very simple post moves, but is just bigger and stronger, and again, possibly older, which is the thing in college, a 22-year-old and 18-year-old physically very different, um, you know, that's not necessarily so useful. And I think that's part of, like, look at Jalil Okafor, for example, uh, who he scored a lot in college, but he did so, again, through just getting the ball in the post. He was big. He had a nice array of post moves, but they just don't do that much in the NBA. Defenders are better. Um it's just not very efficient, and he couldn't pass out of them, which is why, again, assists are important um, in that sense as well. But, yeah. How dare you sully the name of Jaw? 
Um, yeah, I still thought he would be better than he was, though. Again, uh, I, I was a little raw. I thought he'd be a very useful like bench big man. So yeah, what this, do I know? He's, he's, well, I was he's curious about when the... you. Oh no, go ahead, Dara. Oh, I was just gonna say I was curious when you go back five years. Um, I was thinking about that as I was reading your methodology because things are really changing so much mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. the way the game is played. It's like you can't you take a you don't want to go back too far. Like even though you'd have more data, you don't really mm-hmm. want to go back too far because the game was different. Right. That's why I only went to 2010, and honestly, even that might be way too far because that's where I think the three pointers might you know, be a little bit buggy because big men in 2010 did not take threes in college. Generally, there were some, but not many. So a lot of the guys who took them were kind of fringe prospects. who didn't have many other skills and that could throw off that number. It's possible if I just isolated it down to more recent years, three pointers would be bigger and more positive. Um, But that is something that's a little wonky. And that's why like every year, basically I post new articles because every year it changes a little. And it's not even because the methodology is wrong, though it might be, obviously. Uh, it's just because stuff is always changing, and guys who would have been successful five years ago or ten years ago aren't anymore. Uh, and you can see that even in a guy like Blake Griffin, who was a great player you know, in his prime a few years ago, but would have been like a dominant superstar, like all NBA first team, like every single year if he'd come into the NBA like ten years earlier. Um, but the league adjusted, and he's just not quite as valuable now as he would have been. Uh, so yeah, you always have to check. And that's why I don't generally put a lot of stock in a lot of predictive models because it's impossible to predict this stuff. Like even in two or three years, teams are taking like twice as many three pointers as they were in the NBA. Uh, so it's, it's really tough to tell it, it, the draft is just unpredictable, even for methods and predictions. And, you know, with all these advanced algorithms, like people, even the smartest people with the best stuff with on prospects, like all the time. The thing is, is that well, the, people, there, 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 are all, there are a few things that you can count on from the big position, no matter what era there, it, it, it's in. And it goes all the way back. And that's the big one, obviously, is rebounding. I mean, that, mm-hmm. that's where you get a guy like Carl Malone, who at Louisiana Tech was, you know, one of the best rebounders in the country. And that translated immediately. You look at a guy like uh, Paul Millsap, who went to, you know, the same school. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Guys like this who come from small schools, and this is the same kind of thing we've seen with Damian Lillard at Weber State. We'll get to the guards here in a little bit, but there, there, there are a few things from smaller schools that translate based on production. Um, with the guards, we'll mm-hmm. see it's, it's three-point percentage, especially for the guys now that you can measure where they're taking threes from. Um, but rebounding for bigs and blocks for bigs is one of those things that are – totally tangible rebounding more so than blocks because of the size variations in, in, in different conferences. But, um, rebounding is something that will show up through the ages, through the years, regardless of era. Well, you brought up point guards. Do you want to pivot and talk about point guards? What you found about the, that class? Yeah. So, um, I'll just go into that. I think probably the most important thing uh, I talked about, this is the most recent article. I think it came out uh, Friday. If I remember correctly, is that assists are actually negative. And again, it's not saying that point guards with a ton of assists in college are worse players or they're going to be worse prospects uh, or anything like that. That's it's really not the case. And points were, again, also negative. I just see that as, again, the way the NBA has shifted in recent years, which is that when you think of the top point guards in the NBA, none of them are really what you'd consider pass first. The closest might be a guy like John Wall or Chris Paul. But even those guys like shoot a lot and they score a lot. And, you know, the best point guard who really doesn't look to shoot that much is, like, Ricky Rubio. 
like I guess. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe like playoff Rajon Rondo. Um, <laughs> you know, it's which just is not a different player. NBA. <laughs> uh, yeah, like it's just not a thing in the NBA anymore. And then you look at college and. What I tried to explain with the assists is, again, like stuff like vision and passing ability carries through from the NBA or not. But from what I can tell, a lot of guys who rack up assists in college do so um, a lot because they're playing with really good teammates, uh, which makes their, their stats look higher, or they just dominate the ball a lot, in which case they're not even playing that well. It's just like when you have the ball like for half your team's possessions, you're going to get some assists, regardless of how good a passer you are, how good your vision is, how, you, how well you run an offense. Um, you know, it's just something you can, you can rack up and the same goes for points. Like it's obviously for most across the board, starting in what high school or maybe even younger. I don't know. Uh, point guards are the guys with the best, best handles. They're the quickest so they can create their own shot the easiest, which means, you know, as the game has shifted in that way, they take the most shots. So scoring is generally going to be higher. So then the question shifts, can they score efficiently? Like obviously any point guard with, you know, any sort of ball handling skills can create like a mid-range shot off the dribble for them on most possessions, but that's a horrible shot. Uh, you know, even if they're good at it, they might score a lot, but their efficiency won't be that good. So I think the key for them is looking at, can they score efficiently, even if it's not in great volume? And most importantly, can they hit threes? Uh, because again, high pick and roll in the NBA um, and spacing the floor is huge. And you need your point guards to be able to do those things unless they're like an otherworldly athlete and playmaker. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think the point guards actually kind of makes the most sense when you just think about what the NBA is right now and what, what, what matters. Steph Curry is a very good passer, but he's not an amazing one. They're better passers. Uh, they're better passers than Russell Westbrook, like much better passers than Russell Westbrook. Uh, but he gets, again, that's a perfect example of a guy who gets a ton of assists, not necessarily like a great passer. Um, so yeah, I thought, I thought it was interesting. I had pretty similar results last year. Actually, that was the one that carried over the most in terms of like efficiency and three-point shooting. Um, but again, it's by no means like if you see a guy with a ton of assists and points in college, uh, like a Damian Lillard, for example, who scored a ton at Weber State. Led the nation uh, That scoring. was no knock. It was because he was the best player on the court by like a ton. <laughs> and he scored a lot and he shot a lot. But you could also look at his efficiency and his threes and see like he was doing so even though he was, you know, double or triple teamed or whatever. He could still score, and that really translated to the NBA, like, right away. And that's that's perfect right there because you, you tied that last part into exactly what I was going to say there. With, with Damian Lillard kind of alluding to what I said earlier, what the Blazers staff was looking at, you know, in that time period wasn't his just scoring output. And yeah, like I said, he, he led the nation in scoring, but it was how he was doing it. It, it, was, it mm-hmm. was in the high pick and roll. There were, there were many, many, many scouts – that said that there hadn't been a point guard who ran the pick and roll out of college as good as Damian Lillard since Chris Paul. Like that's, that's the kind of mm-hmm. praise he was getting coming out of college. And it wasn't, Oh man, this guy can really score. It was, he has the headiness and ability to run a team and to score out of this incredibly valuable set, you know, in, in 2011 and 12, when that was the, the in vogue way to score, like that was the, the onset of that transition into uh, pace and space and then throw on top of there his ability as a six foot one guard, even in the Mountain West, to create his shot from beyond the three point line with efficiency, and that's what allows his tangible stats to carry over into the intangibles, like running a team and running out of the pick and roll. So to summarize on about the point guards, the uh, this the statistics that you saw carrying over and. Um, 
most into the NBA were um, not gaudy number point numbers, but their true shooting percentage. Mm-hmm. So true shooting percentage, uh, being able to score not only – does that inc- also in- include free throws? I can never remember. Yeah. Okay, so that does include threes and free it's throws your as well. Efficiency. So all the different ways that they're able to score, like having a multitude of, of ways and being efficient in your scoring. And then three points and steals, those things were the most important for point guards who went on to have success in the NBA. Yeah, steals have been, I think that's been like a point guard thing for, I mean, I'm definitely not the first person to say that steals correlate well with point guard success. Um, I think generally steals might have been relevant for every, they were for wings and, and point guards. But I think steals, like a lot of times, that used to be how people valued defense, especially perimeter defense. It's like, oh, they have a lot of steals. They're a good defender. And then there was a backlash against that with like Allen Iverson and some other guys who gambled for steals. And definitely some guys who get a lot of steals aren't necessarily great defenders. But what it does is it shows the guys like functional athleticism. Like, can they make quick jumps into passing lanes to get those steals? Even if it's a bad gamble, it's like they do have that athleticism or that wingspan or that height to intercept those passes. They do have kind of that court sense to get them. Um, and for some, obviously, it's just quick hands and, like, actually really good defense uh, that enables that. But, yeah, generally, it's just, like, how do you get steals? It's, like, you don't just happen upon a ball. Like, you don't just – it doesn't just roll to you and you pick it up. It's, like, oh, that's a steal. It's that's probably not like, how it works. Dang. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking I could, make, I could have a career. Oh, well. <laughs> um, yeah. So, like, it, it's definitely super important for a guy, especially who's kind of at the head of the attack, like – when they're reading the opposing point guard, whoever's running the offense, like, can they read where that pass is going? Can they make jumps into those lanes to get steals? Especially in college where, like, NBA-level athletes should really stick out and, like, should be able to snag. Like, call it, I just college basketball just makes me sob sometimes for how bad it is. Uh, like, you know, a guy who should be, like, an NBA-ready point guard should be able to, like, dominate, even on the defensive end. Even if they're not that good defensively, just through, like, sheer, like, athleticism, they should and and ability to read a court they should be able to like be able to get like one and a half a game um and generally some of the really good ones will have more than that but uh yeah steel is super important and just attack on the, the steals part of it here there there's an ongoing discussion in the nba like what's a steal worth it's very much reminiscent of, of money ball like should you mm-hmm. bunt should you steal should you go for the extra base like what's the reward on it and it, it, it's, you mean like, it, like offensive rebounds Yes, it's the same thing. Like, and that's that's why certain teams commit a certain amount of pressure to the to the offensive backboard. Like, what's the reward for it? Like for the Blazers, it's much more rewarding to go for offensive rebounds than it is for steals, and that's simply because they have the personnel to be able to exploit that regularly. Ed Davis is one of the best offensive rebounders in the league and has been for years. Nurkic is a big body that when he commits to it can get after. It. Same with Aminu. Same with Harkless. Now, on the flip side of that, the Blazers are not a team that generates steals. And when they do, they're really not that great at capitalizing on them. The only one on their team consistently who was good at capitalizing in the open open floor is Maurice Harkless. So them gambling for a steal doesn't really give you a whole lot. Because if Damian Lillard generates a steal, is he is he beating Russell Westbrook or John Wall down the floor? Is is he beating the the super freak wing who's six eight six nine who's going to chase him down? No. So that, that's why you, I think you see the Blazers be much more sound defensively, uh, much more conservative with their defensive schemes because they're mm-hmm. not able to capitalize on those things 
um, as much as they are on the other side where offensive rebound is much more impactful. Um, and that's why I, th- I think that when you're talking about these things, you have to take this into consideration um, based on your team's scheme and your personnel. Because if you've got a guy that's going to generate a ton of steals for you, but you don't have anybody who's really going to capitalize on the other end, yes, it's, it's, it's a win uh, on that possession, but what's it worth for you in the long run? Hmm. Interesting. Well, um, speaking to move us on to the final one and, you know, speaking of what's the right personnel around you, one of the things that people have been talking a lot about is the Blazers need for wings. And so that's your (laughs) final category. And what are you laughing at, Dan? Uh, this, 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 this could Where be, were you 10 days ago, Dan? Yeah, 10 days um, ago, two weeks ago, two months ago, two years ago, whatever it was. Yeah. That's just my favorite new saying. I'm just going to use that all the time. Um, you know, so with the number 24 pick, do you think the Blazers might look at a wing? And what might they learn um, about uh, college production correlating to the NBA for wings? I think they should look at a wing. I thought they should have looked at a wing last year. Um, like I said, like I do like Collins. I think uh, he's a good prospect. I think Dan would agree. Um, I was a huge Donovan Mitchell fan, like I mentioned. I predicted he'd be a top five prospect from last year. Uh, I underrated him, actually. Um, but uh, I thought like either him or even Luke Kennard, who was actually pretty solid for Detroit, would have been a better pick than Collins. I was shocked um, that they didn't pick one of those guys. Um, but yeah, I think, I think they definitely need to look at a wing. Um, I don't see the real need for a point guard cause they have Lillard right now. They still have McCollum and you can always find a decent backup point guard and free agency. Uh, big men again, Collins is there. Um, they're going to probably have one of Nurkic or Davis. To, so hold down the fort. You play small with Aminu. Uh, just in terms of need, like a wing is the easy, the easy option. And there are also a fair amount of wings who should be around in the later part of the first round, this draft. I'm not going to get too much into this draft class, obviously, uh, but there are a whole bunch kind of from that 15 to 30 range. And at least a couple of them should be there at 24. Um, so I, yes, the Blazers should absolutely pick a, pick a wing. Uh, if one is there, unless somebody really staggering falls. And, There's okay, a pile of combo guys. Kind of, uh, I thought this was kind of like the stats that made sense were, you know, uh, I had it as kind of age and turnovers, which age, again, was was relevant for just about all of them. You you want younger guys. <laughs> uh, they're generally going to have more upside. Um, assists, turnovers, rebounds, and steals. So for this, again, like, I think you need to look at what the wing in position the NBA does. Like, obviously, you have your superstars like LeBron or Kevin Durant who can score 30 points a game on pretty good efficiency. They're some of the best players in the NBA history. But, like, when you look at just who are the best role players, the guys you can feasibly attain to draft, what do they do? They play defense, and they can do little things on the court. Um, not even necessarily shoot, but just um, when you look at, again, like Patrick McCaw, who was not good for the Warriors this year, um, but, like, he legitimately played and helped them in a finals last year as a rookie, which is staggering. Like, what does he do? Like, he knows how to play on the basketball court. He can, he's a good passer. Uh, he gets steals. He can get rebounds, even despite his very small frame. And you could see that even in college. That's why I loved him so much. He was like a, he was consistently had high, like assist and steal and rebound numbers. Um, and those are just things that like do it all wings can do. When you look at the complaints against a guy like Andrew Wiggins or Jabari Parker, it's that they don't do anything but score. And even if they can score semi-efficiently, it's like on a night when their shot is not falling, what are they giving you? They're not giving you anything. Um, 
And that's what you look for in this age when point guards kind of run the offense and do a lot of the scoring damage for most teams is you want a wing who can do stuff on any given night. Can they make the read on a pass, uh, especially with like the free flowing offenses that are kind of taking over right now? Can they get boards, uh, especially on teams when you're going small, like you need your wings to be able to rebound better if you're not playing as many big men? Can they play defense? Uh, when you look at the role players outside of the Cavs, which is just, you know, it's hard to even look at them. Uh, when you look at all the <laughs> other teams and you look at their their wing players, like you look at Iguodala, uh, like Sean Livingston to some extent, even though he's he's a point guard, he basically plays like a wing. Uh, Trevor Reza, P.J. Tucker. Um, the entire like Celtics Bobby roster. Too. Yeah, like, you know, these guys all can play defense. They can rebound. They can make passes. And the crucial thing is that people always think of three and D. But when you look at a lot of those guys, a lot of those guys, they could not shoot at all in college. PJ Tucker took like three threes throughout his college career, <laughs> like total. And now he's what, like a 38% shooter on decent percentages. Same with Ariza, who's really bad. Aminu. Um, Bamute could not shoot at all. Aminu, perfect example of a guy who's like, yeah, he's not Clay Thompson, but like he can hit NBA threes even when they're kind of contested. Uh, and that's really valuable. And it's something that like, to some extent, like top line shooting ability is probably somewhat natural, but like being able to just work your way up to an average three point shooter, that is very doable, especially for wings who have a height to shoot over guys. Again, the difference versus point guards who you need to be able to have the, the handles to get your shot off and stuff. Uh, but yeah, like that's why I didn't think three pointers are all that important. It's just like guys can, in the end, most of them can teach themselves how to shoot threes, but you can't teach yourself really how like vision and just ability to, to read the game on either end is kind of just like you have it or you don't. And uh, of that's like what I think assist rebounds and steals show. And you're, you know, you break your arm in such a way that you can no longer shoot. Then, then, <laughs> then you're allowed to not be able to shoot. But so Marcus Smart has no excuse. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, some guys just, it never happens. Like Marcus Smart, that's probably never going to be able to shoot threes. Like Michael Kidd, Gilchrist, like I don't know what, on how on earth he shoots, like how he ended up shooting like that. Uh, some guys, it's just never in the cards, but it's just, it's a skill that can be learned and stuff like just feel for the game, like just basketball IQ. This is a simple way to put it. Like guys can get better at that as they play more and as they get more exposure to like schemes and, and opposing players. But to some extent, like you're a smart basketball player or you're not. Hmm. Well, I thought all of these were really enlightening because they show that it's not always the obvious uh, statistics that uh, point to what teams choose. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So like because they're they're probably running, you know, analyses similar to this as well. If they haven't, you know, contacted you to try to get yours. Right. <laughs> we'll pull oh, no. them for you. <laughs> but uh but, you know, they're, you know, as fans, you know, we might some, some might, might just look at the raw statistics and assume that if we are getting a wing, we want a wing that, you know, is really good at three-point shooting. But this is a way to just pause and be like, you know, there's more to the story sometimes than just what the raw um, statistics say, which I think we all know. But I, I thought this was a really enlightening way of looking at, um, at it with the draft coming up. Uh, Dan, you got any more questions on, on these? I would recommend everybody, if they haven't re read them, maybe we can link to them in the um, in the show notes so people want to go and read them themselves. No, for the most part, I mean, th th this is stuff that I I've kind of talked about over the last few years when it when it comes into the draft. They're, they're, as, as Robert was talking about, there things come and go as far as what's wanted or needed in the NBA, so there's more value placed on things. Um, if you're a statistical outlier on the good side 
of something, and I'm talking like the staggering numbers, like uh, a Mo Bamba, like his his block <laughs> rate is just it's it, it makes you giggle if you understand like what he does. Um, you don't care what the raw numbers are, you, you just don't because you look at it and you go, okay, this guy's affecting how many shots with his seven foot ten inch wingspan, which I know you love, Tara. I know you love wingspan. Um, <laughs> But I mean, when when there's yeah. a, when those outliers yeah, are I out love there, Mo Bamba. I, I am I am the biggest Mo Bamba. Like over the last couple of years, like I've had like one guy that wasn't a top tier guy, like the no you know the no nonsense number one overall pick that I've it's kind of been my guy. Last year it was uh, uh remind me Tara who was it last year? I what <laughs> are you talking about? Donovan Mitchell. <laughs> Donovan Mitchell. I thought was, you were tricking me, no, and no, I was no. going to say OG Adenobi or no, somebody. No, OG, OG was number two on my board. So okay. um, Donovan o- Mitchell was just too obvious. Yeah, uh, D- Donovan Mitchell <laughs> was my guy. Um, Jonathan we Isaac was, was the other one. Um, and this year, <laughs> it, it's it's Bomba. But I wanted to have, have you run these numbers yet for for this draft class? Yes, actually. Um, who who rates well um, as far as? where Portland could potentially be picking at at 24. So basically anywhere in the Let 20 me, to 30 range. I'll look at wings specifically. Cause I think we all kind of agree. That's who they should be looking at. They're, they're looking uh, at wings. Definitely look yeah. at something else. Well, that's I mean, what they'll go for. Everybody that's been rumored to have been linked to the Blazers so far is a combo guard. Is it a six, five combo guard? Yes. Six, five. I think there's a couple guys that are six, six in there, but otherwise, I mean, you've got Chandler but Hutchinson. Really only six, five. Yeah, I know you've got the uh, DiVincenzo. You've got, um, uh, mm-hmm. Walker, Kyrie Thomas, Shamit, Zaire Smith. Um, I like all those guys. Yeah, I, I think they're they're good guys. But I mean, again, unless Portland's able to add somebody like Hutchinson, they're not getting that true wing length. You're getting guys that are, mm-hmm. even though they're listed at six five. Like, I want to see DiVincenzo up up close and personal. I, I just <laughs> I, I just have a hard time believing he's six five. Like it's, it's the way like, yes. it's the way CJ McCollum is six, five. And it's like, he's, he's six, three and Damian Lillard mm-hmm. six, three and he's mm-hmm. six, one. So, um, uh, what, 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 who do you have as far as, you know, the, the best fit potentially for Portland? So there are some guys, uh, Kyrie Thomas again is on the short side. Uh, he rates really well by the model, like super high, mm-hmm. uh, assist numbers, good steal numbers. He was, I think he was the defensive player of the year, two years in a row in whatever conference he was in, uh, Troy Brown, um, really good. And he was at Oregon, wasn't he? Yeah, and that's actually uh, really surprising because he was very underwhelming at Oregon considering what was expected from him. Yes. So he's a guy where, like, he was not efficient at all, but he averaged 3.2 assists a game, uh, which is pretty good for a freshman wing guy. Mm-hmm. Um, like, that shows he probably knows how the game generally works on offense, um, at least to some extent. I can't promise anything on his shot or anything else, but uh, he probably would be good in, like, a free motion offense type of thing. Um, Bruce Brown, uh, who I'd never heard of before this, but I had him in like the top 100 prospects. Uh, he's older, but he also had very good assist numbers. He had good rebound numbers too. Uh, Hutchinson, I know there's a lot of pushback on him because he's old and, um, there's some things that people don't really like about him, but, uh, he rates out very well. Uh, Jacob Evans, if he falls from Cincinnati, um, is really good. Honestly, a lot of the wings, (laughs) a lot of the wings in the middle are the ones who I really like Josh Okogie. Is another guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I George think he Tech. was really good at the combine too. Yep. Uh, but yes. Okay. Yeah. I have one in particular because this is a name I've heard floated around, and I've seen him mocked anywhere from like 18th to like 38th. Kata Bates' job. So I actually have him as a big man. 
Interesting. Um, is, it be, is it because of he kind of plays that hybrid small forward, power forward role? Yes. Okay. So, like, he's – I see him kind of, like – he kind of reminds me a little bit of Draymond Green. Obviously, he's not going to be Draymond Green. Uh, but he's kind of built like that where, mm-hmm. like, I don't know if he really has the skills or the shooting to be, like, a wing player. I know I just said they can learn how to shoot. So, you know, <laughs> um, but he he is a very interesting prospect. Um, you know, at 24, you don't really have boom or bust guys because, like, you know, it's 24. You're not really expecting greatness from them. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's a guy who, like, I think he could, if he finds the right team in the right role, like, I think he could be very good. But, like, if he ends up on the wrong team and they, like, ask him to do something that he's not supposed to do or he tries, like, I th- he could also be out of the league in two years because he's kind of undersized. Um, for, I think he's going to be a stretch four in the NBA. Um, and I count stretch fours as big men, actually not as wings. Um, so he's interesting. Um, he would not be my favorite for the Blazers to draft. I'd like them to draft more of a pure wing guy, um, like kind of one of those long, more athletic guys. But... Um, He's not a bad pick. Uh, there are some guys who are around there um, who I like. Hamadou Diallo rates out horribly. Um, Jalen Hudson also not great. Uh, but honestly, like I said, like there are a lot of really good wings in this draft. Um, even the guys who don't measure well, like Lonnie Walker from Miami, um, like his stats weren't very good. But like when you just watch him play, like he could be a guy who could he could potentially be like a Donovan Mitchell. Uh, he could also be like a worse Dion Waiters. So. You I'm, le- I'm leaning know. towards Dion Waiters, and even though I love Walker, he he has like 2005 Gunner written all over him. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, if the right, like again, Stotts could actually be like that system where it's like outside of Lillard and McCollum, there's not that much dribbling. Like you pass and you move and you try to get open shots. Um, like the- he could actually be a good fit there, like because he actually can pass when he wants to. Uh, like, but if he gets drafted to the wrong team and they just tell him to start shooting from his rookie year, like it's over, <laughs> like he's never going to stop shooting. Um, so like, I, I think that's basically, you know, it's kind of a cop out, but for like anybody outside the top, you know, 10, except for rare, like Donovan Mitchell exceptions, like where you land is huge. Um, you know, there are guys who bust out every year who I think if they'd gone like to a different team probably would have been good. Um, I think Collins was like a very good fit for the Blazers and stock system and the guys who the Blazers already had. I don't know if he would have shown as much on another team or even gotten minutes on another team. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of good guys. I think, I think they'll be able to draft at least a rotation player there, which at this point, like a cheap rotation player on the wing is, would be really nice for the Blazers. That's worth waiting gold for Portland. I mean, to be, to be honest, that's, that's kind of where they're sitting at it, which kind of has me, Scratching my head because, as I was saying, the, the, the guys that are mocked between you know fifteen and thirty, uh, there's there's hardly a true you know quote unquote wing uh, in mm-hmm. that group, save maybe Hutchinson and and Brown. I mean, everybody else for the most part is six three to six five. Yeah, it's I mean it's tough because you don't want to end up drafting like another guy who ends up being too small. And then it's like the same thing that they've run into with, with Dame and CJ where they're too small to guard some teams and, you know, they got exploited on, you know, and then it just, it's the same thing. Um, I I'm definitely with you there. It's, it's going to be a really interesting draft. I think you hear that Tara. He's with me. Well, (laughs) you're just so charismatic, Dan. We just all want to jump on board. (laughs) Well, I uh, I want to try and end this on a high note. 
luck. <laughs> we were doing good for a little while, and then we all just decided that all we all they have are, are in the Blazers range are six three to six five uh, shooting guards. But that's fine. <laughs> Because um, there's going to be a diamond in the rough, I'm sure. And uh, like I say, every time we talk about, um, you know, predicting what's going to happen, I say to your, you know, from your mouth to Neil Olshay's ears, we'll just hope that they that he's listening. Um, I We're running out of time. I had one quick question about the Clippers. You guys think mm-hmm. I have time to ask? Throw it in there. All righty. So the the Clippers really have changed a lot over the last year. Um, they've uh, sent a lot of folks away. They've got a couple of picks. And there's always talk about DeAndre Jordan. Robert, what do you think the Clippers are going to do? And are, do you think there are any mutually beneficial deals that the Clippers and the Blazers might uh, talk about or revisit? That is tough. Um Right now, it's kind of out of their control um, because he has a player option, whether he opts in or out. Um, so it's all know, about DeAndre. Kind. Of, I mean, yeah, they're talking like a potential like long-term extension, like he opts out and they re-sign him to like a three-year deal for less money, but that keeps him through like the end of his prime, uh, something like that. Um, he, I don't know why he would really opt out unless he got like a nice long contract to get him through into his 30s because like his option for next year is like over 23 million i think and like he is not getting anywhere near that this summer um on a per year basis as for the blazers i mean dj is kind of who i think would be an ideal center uh for the blazers in that he doesn't need the ball which is why i don't really like nurkic for them like he doesn't need the ball he plays defense he grabs an endless amount of rebounds uh even on nights when he doesn't really show up he gets 10 rebounds he just does always um but to make the salaries work, um, the easiest would be like a CJ for DJ thing. But I don't really think the Clippers want to do that. Um, I don't know if the Blazers would want to give CJ up for like an, a much like an even older player who's like not as good, but just as a better fit. I don't think that really happened. Outside of that, like contract wise, it would have to be something like Harkless and a Minu and something else. And then that again plays into like you need wings in today's NBA. Um, so I really, I just, I don't know if a deal is there between the two teams. Um, I think like another deal that could happen is like, if the Blazers want to trade up, the Clippers do have two picks. And if they want to trade down from 12 or 13 to 24, um, in exchange for taking on some salary or, um, for, you know, any other asset that the Blazers might throw in, that is, is a possibility. Cause I could see the Blazers. I don't know if there've been any rumors about it, but I could see them wanting to trade up and the Clippers, uh, are very flexible about where they those two draft picks go. Yeah, the Blazers have kicked around, or at least Neil O'Shea has kicked around the idea that the draft pick itself is in play. So, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think that's a good thing because the difference between picking at 24 and 12 is, is obviously drastic. Um, the uh, I want to say the gold of this draft, especially when you're talking about the wing position, it's right in that region. Um, if you're if you're looking for somebody who has potentially more upside, that's where you see a guy like uh, a Bridges or a Knox or either of the Bridges, mm-hmm. to be fair. Um, and then after that, it's that really that next tier, really twelve, thirteen. It's kind of where the, the demarcation line of supposed goodness falls off. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's generally accurate i think um you know the the clippers are in a really good position i don't really want them to trade down to be honest i don't really want them to trade up i think they're in like a very perfect spot to get two very good prospects 
Um, but I don't know what the Blazers would necessarily throw in. Maybe they, they like some guy enough that they throw in a future first along with the 24 to move up. Um, if the right guy falls to them at 12 or 13, uh, you never know. Cause a lot of stuff happens on the day of the draft. Like if, if the Clippers guys don't fall to them, uh, but a Blazers guy, they really like is still there at 12 or 13. The Clippers might be willing to trade down. So you never know. It could happen. Well, I think that's about all the time we have for tonight. So, Robert, do you want to tell folks uh, where they can find your work? Uh, I'm at Clips, uh, Clips Nation. It's the Clippers SB Nation blog. Uh, you can also probably have hopefully read at least some of my stuff on Blazer's Edge. <laughs> um, I think some of them did pretty well in terms of, like, comments and views and stuff. I don't really keep a close eye on that. But um, hopefully you've read some of that stuff. I think it's generally, you know, it's okay. <laughs> Uh, it's not Zach Lowe, but um, it'll do. And then on Twitter, if you want to find any of my not very good social media thoughts, uh, I'm at Rich Homie Flom. I know it's like an old dated rap reference at this point. Um, but uh, yeah, if you honestly you just well. search Robert Flom Clippers, uh, which I don't know why you would, but if you want to, I will pop up. Uh, so yeah, that's how you find me. Well, I learned a lot. This has been the math episode of the Blazers Edge <laughs> podcast. <laughs> this, this, is just, this is just the intro, too, Tara. This is just the intro. What? This is just the intro to, to, to NBA Nerd 101. <laughs> yeah, well, you think I haven't been paying attention. I've actually been absorbing a lot of this. I think I, I, think I equip myself pretty well if I get sucked into one of these conversations. Um, I'll, I'll just uh, talk... I, I can be found at TCB Biggs on Twitter. I also will be having a new episode of Women's Hoops and Talks podcast coming out. It's going to be our 15th episode. And so we're going to talk about 15 things that we liked about the season this summer. It should be, or this year, it should be pretty fun. And it will be out later this week. And you can follow the Hoops and Talks podcast at Hoops and Talks on Twitter. And that about does it for me. Dan, you want to take us out of here? Yep, not a problem. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Dean Morang or on Blazers Outsiders through the summer on Tuesday to Thursday at 7 p.m. on NBC Sports Northwest. We've got the kickoff coming up over the next couple of weeks. Um, I'm still putting everything in the works to hit the summer league, so look for some content down there. Um, other than that, yeah, I think we're kind of wrapping it up here as we kind of gear up for, for the draft. It's only a few weeks away. Yay. I can't even take this. It'll be here before we know it. Yes, thankfully. Uh, for Tara, for Robert, uh, I'm Danny. We'll catch you guys next time.